Dimelang Mzanzi and welcome back to Sisters Without Shame, a No Holds Barred podcast that is proudly brought to you by Healthful Mzanzi. I am your host, Nolu Tandungakani, and I am here to hold your hand as you seek the answers to those mysterious bumps and aches you dare not speak of in public. Here in Zanzi, I don't think anyone loves winter as much as I do. I love the long nights so I can get all my extra snoozes in. Not everyone feels the same though. This week, Anonymous from Johannesburg has an unpopular opinion to share about sleep through this voice note. I hate that I have to go to sleep. I feel like it is such a waste of time and productivity. Hours upon hours of life enjoying or learning things wasted. I will often stay up far, far longer than I should into the night since I have an early morning job. Just because I want to enjoy my time off as much as I possibly can before I go to work and I only go to bed when my body starts making me shut down. I know it's not healthy and I consider that often, but this is still hard for me to resolve. The last thing I'd want to do is lie down and try to make myself go to sleep. It's torture. Batung Anonza, like I have no words. Anyways, our guests today are sleep specialists from the University of the Witwatersrand School of Physiology. Dr. Stella Lakovides and Dr. Karin Schweimeyer are here to answer some of our most frequently asked questions about the importance of sleep. Why do people sleep? I think we can start with you, Karin, to give some insights on that. First of all, we have to see that people sleep a third of their lives. So it must be for a good reason. <laughs> so what we found out, sleep is a very recent science. I mean, it's only been something like 80 years that now where people have done you know, systematic sleep studies. But what we know is also what happens when we don't sleep enough. And we know that there are really dire consequences. Some of them have to do with our general health. So people who don't sleep enough tend to have more high blood pressure, for example. They tend to have more cardiovascular complications as well in general. And they tend to have more problems with their immune system, but also with, um, so people who don't sleep well chronically tend to have higher risk of diabetes and insulin resistance. So that's really purely, I would say, you know, on the health part of things, you know, our body health. Of course, there's a whole part about mental health as well. And, you know, mental health is not different. It's actually body health as well. It's brain health. And there's nothing, again, to be ashamed about for mental health. And people tend to hide a bit, you know, their mental, if they have mental issues like depression or, you know, bipolar disorders, etc. But we know that people who don't sleep enough tend to have a higher likelihood of becoming depressed. And depressed is, you know, a very complicated. But depression in general is a complicated disease. And again, it's a disease in the brain, but that's perfectly treatable. It's a bi- like diabetes, but it's just happening in the brain. We need to pay as much attention to these mental health issues compared to the, our own body health issues. And then a concept that we've kind of been made aware of recently is sleep hygiene. Can you, Stella, maybe explain you know, what sleep hygiene is? So sleep hygiene essentially is a variety of behavioral responses and environmental habits that we can do 
in order to support better sleep and better sleep quality or uninterrupted sleep. So it's things that we can do and things that we can change in our environment to help us to sleep better. So some of the very basic ones, the one that's shown scientifically proven, but some examples of the sleep hygiene techniques to assist sleep. One is to have a regular bedtime and wake up time every day. So kind of have a consistent routine around about what time you go to bed every night and what time you wake up. So that helps with the alignment of our circadian rhythms. And that's been shown as a probably one of the most important sleep hygiene tips. Then there's other things like, of course, sleep in a comfortable bed in a dark room, quiet environment, keep away all your devices an hour or so or two before bedtime. So no blue light that will interrupt sleep. Don't take caffeine close to bedtime. Don't drink alcohol close to bedtime. So it's things that we know that interrupt sleep. So we're basically saying remove them from your life in order to help your natural rhythm of sleep to occur as it should. I'm very guilty of blue lights thing. Everyone. <laughs> we also. It's kind of tricky because you do want to check your socials and stuff. And sometimes the nighttime is the only time you do have in the day. Karin, do people kind of need less sleep as they grow older? Do they change? That's a typical misconception, I would say, because absolutely not. And in fact, you know, the people who seek the most help for their sleep are people who are aging because they don't understand why they sleep so poorly. And, you know, they used to sleep well when they were young, but now, you know, they are in their 50s like me and they start not sleeping well, not having consolidated sleep and they complain about it. If they complain about it, surely it's not meant to be like that. It means that we, we cannot deal with too little sleep. So we know that with aging, we have changes of everything changes, our body changes, we have more lines, etc. And you have sort of your own lines inside your brain, especially that clock. So we were talking about circadian rhythm. So we have this master clock, which is just behind our eyes and which is entrained to the light-dark cycle of the earth, you know, through direct input of light. So light gets into our eyes, into the retina, and then talks to the clock and it modulates the firing of that clock which then modulates you know, our wake pathways, tells them to keep awake. And then when it stops firing, then it's telling us fall asleep. And that's why we fall asleep so quickly in a way. So we know that this clock changes with age. It's not as robust. It usually gives us very strong rhythms, you know, for example, of melatonin, of temperature rhythms, of blood pressure. But these rhythms tend to become a little bit less wide, you know, as we get older. And this is really a whole field of therapy that we're trying to look at, which is just how do we improve again these rhythms as we age? And, you know, how then do we make our sleep better as we age? And you, Stella, do you have any inputs on how we can kind of better sleep as we age as well? As far as I understand it as well, to add to what Karine is saying, the brain loses the capacity to generate these waves. The only thing that I've seen that more recently is gaining a bit of momentum in, in all fields of health, I should say, is sort of exercising your brain through techniques like meditation and mindfulness and that. So things like meditation, if I say it like a layman, will kind of grow particular parts of your brain. And there's quite a bit of evidence to show that it has an impact on the size of your frontal lobe and that. I'm not sure that we know if, in fact, you can reverse the aging of the brain with meditation, but perhaps we could train our brain to generate those waves through practices like meditation. The problem is that it doesn't happen overnight. 
it's probably years and years of practice and patience and consistency. And so most people don't even want to engage in those things because they don't feel that they have the time to do meditation or that they have the energy to do that. But that said, there are meditation techniques and now there's lots of apps that do help put people to sleep. And I suppose if that's a technique that helps you even just to fall asleep, then I don't see how it could harm anyone. If I can add just something, and I fully agree with the meditation, and I think this is really super important for anybody who undergoes insomnia in any form of insomnia. Another thing that we know about aging is that there are more sleep disorders. And, you know, we have specific sleep disorders, something called sleep apnea, for example, which is something where people snore a lot. They stop breathing during the night. Because they stop breathing, of course, it wakes them up because stopping to breathe, it's what wakes you up. Because that's the interesting thing about sleep compared to being in a coma. You can wake up from it if you're in danger. That's the whole point. You can only sleep in conditions when there's no danger. So sleep apnea wakes you up, although you're probably not conscious of it. And we know that we have much more sleep apnea as we get older. That's probably due to either because we gain a bit of weight, you know, as we are older, but also probably because we have a little bit more infections and maybe our muscles are just not as tonic. So, you know, as soon as we are lying down and we have to fight gravity, they don't fight gravity as well. And you start gasping, you know, for your breath during your sleep. So that's something we always have to check for, you know, before we say, oh, it's, you know, you're not sleeping because you have insomnia. We need to make for sure that these people don't have, you know, something called sleep apnea. I just wanted to also circle back to the meditation. A lot of people want quick solutions to our no sleep problems. So we'd usually just reach for a pillow or something Mm. like that. Doesn't it kind of impact like a dependence or like an addiction kind of thing to always look for the quick solutions? See, there are different types of pills for, you know, sleeping. There are pills which are addictive, which are, you know, effective, but they should never be used in a chronic type of way. They should only be used as a way to help. For example, some people are so badly with insomnia that they won't fall asleep, you know, until maybe 3 a.m. Or they even have the feeling that they don't sleep at all. And for these people, giving maybe one pill one day, and just showing them, no, you can't sleep. That's super important. And, and that plays into the meditation and the psychological behaviors that we have around sleep. So this helps, but it only helps if you do at the same time something called cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a sort of psychological help. It's not meditation at that point. It's more talking about our environment and sleep and how we can change maybe our behaviors related to sleep. And especially people who are insomniac become very fixated on the fact of falling asleep. And they have to change this fixation because it's something that happens. It's a drifting, you know, you drift to sleep. But if you force yourself asleep, that's exactly doing the contrary of drifting. You just hyper arouse yourself. So pills, you know, are only helpful to show, you know, that you're able to sleep, but you should never take pills, which we call the benzodiazepines. We should never take them, you know, on a chronic basis because they're very addictive. Addictive means that I'm taking one pill now, but next week I'll need two pills, you know, to fulfill the same thing. There are other pills now that have been developed, which are not as addictive and which are very helpful. This insomnia that we see with aging, they mainly use something called melatonin. And that's something we produce ourselves, melatonin. And we make less of it, you know, usually as we age. And now we have a medication that releases melatonin throughout the night. And that has been shown. Some people maybe don't tolerate it as well, but when it's well tolerated, it's an excellent medication. 
And the other thing is we forget about things which are not medications, but which are as powerful as medications for sleep, which is getting light during the day. So if you stay in your room the whole day and you're not exposed to natural light, your clock does not reset its rhythms. And so it starts losing its rhythmicity. So you need to be outside in the middle of the day at some point and get that very bright light in your eyes. That's the first thing. The second thing is, since you're doing that anyways, you might as well do some exercise at the same time. And when we say exercise, it doesn't have to be, oh, I'm running like mad. It can just be going out for a walk. It can just be maybe doing a little bit of arm exercise or resistance, but exercising a little bit every day. And again, it can be just walking is such an important part in building our sleep pressure. And it helps us with our sleep. And these are just as effective as taking medication. So that's really super important to know because it's free. We can just go outside and we can just walk. So what Corinne mentioned, those two things are also part of sort of sleep hygiene tips is get some exercise a little bit in the day, maybe not too close to bedtime, go outside and get some sun. So there are many tips. And if anyone Googles sleep hygiene, there'll be loads of information for them to do. And it's little edits that you can do every day, even taking a warm bath at night and having a relaxing bedtime routine. But then quickly going back to the medication, just to add to what Corinne said, those medications are also good to get you back to having a consistent bedtime and sleep and wake up time the way that I thought of the sleep hygiene. So that's the other role. But the problem with the medications, apart from the addictiveness and the dependence, is that they change the kind of sleep that we have. So they change the sleep composition, which is not always beneficial. So they change how much of each sleep stage we have. And that's obviously not ideal because we sleep a particular way for all the health reasons that we don't even fully understand. And all the sleep stages are important. You can't knock out one. I especially didn't know the one about, you know, actually going out to get some light because you know, yeah. we were just in a pandemic and we were told to stay inside. And now, you know, the blue light that your device emits and that keeps you awake at night is the same blue light that we get from the sunshine. So we're supposed to get it from the sunshine in the day, but it should be in alignment with what's happening outside with the sun rising and setting. So when we are exposing ourselves to the blue light of our devices late at night, we're almost deceiving our body to think it's daytime. So then it doesn't put all the stuff into gear that's going to put you to sleep, which includes melatonin, which is what Corinne touched upon, which is now also a drug. Speaking of mental disorders, what kinds of mental health disorders are then commonly linked to insomnia, especially? Since Karin touched on it, let's go with you. Depression is the most well-known one. Also, it's the, one of the most prevalent mental health disorders. And so we know that poor sleep is sort of something that can precipitate depression. So sometimes you may have depression and then you'll start having poor sleep also. And so they feed into each other. And the problem is you need to treat both the depression on one side. So you have medication for depression. But if you haven't sorted the sleep problem behind, so for example, let's say people with sleep apnea, you know, they don't have insomnia, they have sleep apnea. They tend to be much more depressed than people who don't have sleep apnea. So if we sort the depression problem in these people, but we fail to sort the sleep apnea problem, they will continue being depressed and they're never really sorted in terms of depression. So we need to make sure that we sort the sleep apnea. So same thing for an insomnia. We need to make sure that even if we've started sorting the depression part, this insomnia part needs to be sorted. And if the depression medications are not enough to sort the insomnia, then we need to give something or, you know, put people in cognitive behavioral therapy 
so that they improve their sleep or, you know, have them do the meditation, make sure that the sleep hygiene rules are respected, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the most frequent one. But we know in bipolar disorders, one of the things we see in bipolar is when people go into mania. So, you know, bipolar is you go from depression to mania and mania is you're super excited, you're happy, you want to get 10 million things done. And people don't sleep during that time. They don't sleep. I mean, they go into these periods of and the diagnostic criteria of many of bipolar diseases that, that people sleep very poorly during these episodes. And then it's followed by an episode where on the contrary, they're down, they're not doing well. And, and this sort of depression is often associated with what we call hypersomnia. So instead of not sleeping enough, people actually tend to sleep much more. You know, they will stay in bed 12 hours or 14 hours and still feel exhausted and not well. Thank you for joining this week's episode of Sisters Without Shame, Stella and Karine. For more on the ins and outs of sleep, check out healthformzanzi.co.za. If you are in a medical bind and looking for a shoulder to cry on, you can send an email to hello at healthformzanzi.co.za or send us a WhatsApp on 076-132-0454. I would never blue tick you, babes. Yo, sleep, guys. Like, sleep. Get your eight hours in. Who knew sleep had such a big impact on our health? Sleep keeps us healthy and functioning well. It lets your body and brain repair, restore, and re-energize. If you don't get enough sleep, you might experience side effects like poor memory and focus, weakened immunity, and mood changes. That brings us to the end of episode 39 of Sisters Without Shame, proudly brought to you by Healthform Zanzi. From me, Lulu Ngakani, have a great week and remember to show your girls some love by sharing this podcast with a friend. <laughs>